Shalom, shalom, friends. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited to start this new series with you all today. Let's let's start with a poll question here um, that is going to launch us into this first session, although I'm going to give some introductory remarks before we jump in. Okay, S studying Eastern religion and philosophy, uh, Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy. I know almost nothing about Eastern religion and philosophies. That's your first option. Option two, I've learned a little bit along the way. And option three, I'm pretty immersed in the study and practice of Eastern religions and philosophies. So if you'll cast your vote over there, give you a few seconds. It's all anonymous, so don't worry, nobody sees who you are when you uh, cast your vote. Okay, let's see our results. Okay, wow, 25%, so they say they know almost nothing. 75% said they've learned a little along the way, and no one here says they're immersed, wonderful. So friends, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do in these in these weeks to come. And um, um, and then before we get to our first session here. So the idea is that Judaism is timeless. Judaism is timeless and it has been engaged with and responsive to the philosophies of its own time, wherever they emerged from. And we want to explore that world of ideas, in particular, the world of ethics because each of these philosophers we're gonna look at has so many different realms of thought within metaphysics and epistemology um, and, and ethics, not to mention the intersection with theology. And so we will give some over, um, overview of each thinker and their time period, um, but really want to hone in on their approach to, to ethics in particular. And um, our hope is we, we will never demonstrate, we will never uh, put forth a thinker suggesting that they are the antithesis to Judaism or that they are the model. Rather, with each one, we're going to take a critical approach to say, well, wh where are their similarities? Where are their differences? Where can we learn from, from this kind of school of thought? And at different times in our lives, some philosophies may be helpful. And at other times, some philosophies may seem distasteful. And no one should be uh, viewed as cracking the code or mastering philosophy, but rather we don't want to be loyal followers of any thinker, right? That's not the typical Jewish critical approach, but rather um, engaging with them and, um, and responding to them. Also, the goal is not to share everything that a person thought, but rather to pick a few highlights as, as shared. We're not going to take a strictly academic approach, by which I mean here, um, kind of a, a perspective from distance. Rather, we want to think, um, we want to think personally, and we want to think about application in our lives. And then we get when we get into the conversation mode after the presentation, 
um, then we'll think about, well, what does that mean for me and, um, and how I relate to this you know, in my own life? The other note I wanna make is that some ideas we can read strictly within their time period, right? Analyzing everything happening historically that, that they could produce such ideas. That's not the approach we're gonna take. Um, we're gonna look at the idea, ideas outside of their historical context largely. Um, and, and the reason for that is to understand that ideas truly can live beyond their time period. Um, they're not merely a product of their, of their era. Of course, um, one's context always informs one's ideas. But I, but I think part of the power of Torah is the idea that values can exist outside of a particular context. And so we're not going to take a strictly historical approach, but rather an ideas-centered approach. The other thing I want to name is that um, who are most of the philosophers who were influential throughout history? Well, they were almost all white men. And, um, and that poses a little bit of a, of a predicament because we're not looking at just um, thinkers of the last few decades. We're looking at the history of philosophy. And that means that um, when we say, wait, wait a minute, where's the people of color? Right, and we're not looking at African philosophy and people of color as philosophers in America is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, we're not looking at at um, at gay philosophers. Of course, some of these folks may have been gay or queer in one way or another. But again, that's a that's a more recent thing, as well as the prominence of of uh, uh, or, or, or the more recent prominent women philosophers that have emerged. And so, this, of course, in no way is saying that in our day. The voices of people of color or of queer folks or of women um, are, shouldn't be amplified as they should. It's merely contextualizing that when we're looking at the history of ideas, that, that, that that's largely what we're engaging with. And we should be willing both to appreciate ideas in the context they were, not anachronistically critique them as being out of date. Well, of course they're out of date, right? They're 500 years ago, they're 2000 years ago, but also be willing to critique them, offer a feminist critique, you know, or offer you know, a contemporary critique. Of course, that's of value. But I want to state that because, of course, ideas of 25, you know, 2,500 years ago, not to mention 100 years ago, are out of touch with the most progressive ideas of our day. And so we want to critique that, but also appreciate what we can learn from there. Just like when we study the Talmud, we don't study Talmud and just critique it as out of touch. We want to gain wisdom from the Talmud, even while parts of it might rub us the wrong way. And, um, and so this is not just looking at the last few decades, but looking at history and looking at how our Jewish ideas have been shaped over millennia. Okay, so that's, those are my first introductory comments. I'm sure there's a lot more to say about the introductory um, approach to what we're gonna do. The other thing I wanna say is that um, we are focused on Western philosophy. I did wanna give a nod to the East um, it's not my area of expertise, uh, like Western philosophy, but I do. we can't not give a nod to the East. And so our first two sessions, the first is Confucius, as you know, and the second is Buddha, right? We need to look at Confucius and Buddha before we then move to Socrates and, uh, and Plato and Aristotle and all the way from the, from the Greeks um, into the, you know, through the medievals, through modern thinkers, through postmodern thinkers into our own day. The other thing I want to share is that... Um, but given that my, my strong desire to um, have more women's voices included, I, I think that we have decided to move this beyond 40 so that we can include some more contemporary women philosophers as well, just given how important that is. And so there's a number of really significant 
philosophers who are women over the last few decades that we want to we want to be sure to get to them uh, as well. Um, and so those are my introductory comments over there. And the, the thing I want to say before we jump into Confucius is so much is happening in the world of China right now, right? And I want to try to bracket that. There's no doubt, just as the kinds of things that were happening in Babylonia and the Talmud, right, affect who Jews are today, there's no doubt that part of what we're going to look at today affects who China is today and who Chinese people with Chinese identity are, are today. And of course, there's huge gaps and changes. But just to name a few things we might be thinking about with China right now, um, um, you might be following the wars with TikTok in regards to data and intelligence and social media and the Biden administration's push to uh, have TikTok sell um, so that the Chinese uh, government does not have access to um, too much American data. You may be following the Uyghur genocide um, of what's happening in the in the Uyghur camps. You may you may have followed the spy balloons case recently. You may have followed that the uh, that the Chinese leader is today in Russia, right? And and giving cover to uh, Putin um, in regards to um, uh, the war with Ukraine right now. So there's an enormous amount to say about the number two superpower in the world right now. It's tension with America. It's tension with the West. And to some degree, we'll see some of that play out here as well. And I want to name that, but also bracket it, because I don't want to look at Confucius through that lens, but understand that um, that just as Confucius, Confucius shaped with the world's thinking, so too um, uh, Chinese thinking and, and geopolitical leadership today continues to do the same. Okay, friends, here we go. So what makes someone a mensch or a good and honorable person? Why must children honor their parents? What is the point of carrying on old traditions? What is the most important rule of all for everyone to follow? These, of course, are all questions that we can find ample answers to within the texts of the Jewish canon. But I believe Jews are called to learn from the knowledge of the world just as the world can learn from us. And Confucius provides us with some deep and ancient food for thought. No doubt, one of the most influential thinkers of all time, Confucius lived in Lu, China, at about 500 BCE. Why do we call him that? Well, his surname was Kung, and, um, and, and then um, the word for master is Fuzi. So he is Kung Fuzi. And if you kind of say that together, Kung Fuzi, you kind of get to Confucius, you know, Confucius. And so um, he was considered a teacher, an advisor, an editor, a philosopher. Of course, what we mean by philosophy today, what we meant in the Greeks and what we mean then is very different standards. He was a reformer and, and he was even considered by many to be a prophet. Now, while there aren't very clear historical records, it is said that he was an official in the upper echelons of government until dissatisfied by the Duke's lack of morality and character, he abandoned his post for a totally different life. As a philosopher, Confucius championed tradition and character development, placing special emphasis on hierarchies. He stressed the importance of parents and government and the relationship between the two. But he also believed that this natural order was not enough. One must also cultivate a life of virtue, he taught, in order to become a junzi or a gentleman. Right? Next time you want to call someone a mensch, you can call them a junzi, right? Because he had a relatively similar idea. 
in this system, one becomes righteous, we might say, by practicing a series of core behaviors, benevolence, righteousness, ritual propriety, wisdom, and trustworthiness. These are all ideas that no matter what tradition we are raised with, we should find quite familiar. One of the disrupt disruptions that Confucius made was that in the world he was born into, shiny society was built around strict social hierarchies. Confucius, though he valued those established positions of status, was much more interested in a person's merit than in their what we call yichus, the prestige of the family members that preceded them, right? That was an anomaly. More important to him was virtue, which was not exclusive to the ruling class, nor issued by the heavens, but something sought and cultivated by the masses. Additionally, Confucius saw value in the traditional religion and practices, but not for theological reasons. This is a big departure he makes. He stayed silent about the traditional gods and mythologies, right? He knew he couldn't rock the boat there, instead emphasizing the human-constructed moral order while defending religious practice as instrumental in maintaining that order. When we get to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, we'll see some similarities in regards to how strong do you want to push back on Greek mythology when you find it to be nourishkeit, right? When you don't believe in Zeus and the like, like how vocal are you going to be about that? Do you want to survive? In fact, they don't always survive. Um, or do you want to... Um, um, you know, remain silent. In these ways, Confucius could be described as conservative, traditional, and past-looking. He had great respect for ritual, right? And actually, he thinks ritual and music both can transform our character, which is interesting itself, how we think about that Jewishly as well, that the role of ritual is, is also an ethical enterprise that, uh, when done with the, with the, with the focus on, on moral development and a great respect for ancestors, much like we do in Judaism as well. We too are ritual oriented, carrying on the traditions of our ancestors. And we are conservative in the sense that we wanna preserve the truths and values we've inherited rather than create entirely new principles. Confucius's thought should not feel all too foreign to us. Meanwhile, let's, let's uh, go over, um, Fly, let's take a little airplane ride. Four, four and a half thousand miles away, the Jewish world had been facing major upheaval in Confucius's time. The first temple had recently been destroyed, and the 10 lost tribes had been carried off to Babylon, with only Judah, Benjamin, and part of Levi remaining. This is famously memorialized in Psalm 137, which says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat sat and wept as, the, as we thought of Zion. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, right? If you recognize that song, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my tongue stick to my palate if I cease to think of you, if I do not keep Jerusalem in memory, even at my happiest hour, right? That is part of the breaking of the glass at the chuppah, right? Breaking the glass at, at the end of a wedding ceremony is based on this verse here as well that at my happiest hour, I don't want to forget Jerusalem. And so we break this glass. However, Confucius's lifetime would turn into a time of resiliency for the Jewish people. Many Israelites were able to come back from exile. Zechariah served as a prophet, and the building of the second temple began. 
It's also possible that the story of Esther and Purim, which we just celebrated, many of us, takes place during this exact time period. It was after the return to Zion and during the period of the Second Temple that we know today is the rabbinic tradition would begin to develop. Many of the ideas developed by the rabbis find a distinct resonance in the thought of Confucius. For example, Confucius is considered one of the first progenitors of the golden rule. It is, it is recorded in the Analects, a book containing his traditional sayings. Zi Gung, Confucius's student, asked, is there one word which may serve as a rule of practice for all of one's life? The master, Kung, said, is not reciprocity such a word? What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Students of the Talmud will see a direct parallel between this and Hillel the Elder's summary of Judaism to a prospective convert. Hillel lived about 400 years after Confucius. The stranger comes to Hillel and saying, Convert me on condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I am standing on one foot. That is to say, teach me the entire Torah quickly. And Hillel replies to him, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto another. That is the entire Torah and the rest is its interpretation. Go and study. This idea of treating others the way you want to be treated, being the foundation of a just society and a good life, of course, shows up across many world philosophies and religions. That being said, it should be noted that Judaism does not limit itself only to a negative formulation of the golden rule, but also advocates a proactive positive formulation as well from the Torah itself before the time of Confucius. As it says in Leviticus, Vayikra 1918, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. Right? Another parallel is the value of honoring one's parents. In the book of filial piety, written after Confucius's death, but based on his teachings, Confucius is said to have taught, the child derives their life from their parents and no greater gift could possibly be transmitted. His ruler and parent, hence he who does not love his parents, but loves other men, is called a rebel against virtue. And he who does not revere his parents, but reveres other men, is called a rebel against propriety. One writer saw a direct parallel between that passage and the medieval Jewish text Sefer Achinuch, the book of education, which says, a person should take to heart that the father and the mother are the cause of his being in the world. And hence it is truly fitting to honor them in every way and give every benefit he can to them because they brought him into the world and worked hard for him when he was little. And once he fixes this idea in his soul, he will move up from it to recognize the good of God. And he should think at length about how very fitting it is to be careful in his worship of God. Hakimi pointed out that Judaism views filial piety as a model for the ultimate service of God, while Confucianism sees it as a model for the service of the state. This is still relevant in Chinese um, society today. Judaism, by contrast, is deeply skeptical of government. While there may be a mitzvah to honor one's parents, there is no mitzvah to honor the king or the head of state. Well, that is a little bit complicated. Um, in terms of uh, how we relate to that. When we think of Haman in the Purim story and we think of our relationship to power, but this is an important contrast. 
In fact, it is written in Pirkei Avot, be careful in your dealings with the ruling authorities, for they do not befriend a person except for their own needs. They seem like friends when it is to their own interest, but they do not stand by a person in the hour of their distress. Right? So just to just to unpack this a little bit more, right? So in Confucius is thinking, um, honoring your parents is the pathway towards honoring your state. You owe the state, the government, the king, whoever's in charge, your absolute loyalty. And you're, you're honoring your parents is your pathway there. Judaism, by and large, views honoring one's pathway, parents, as a pathway towards honoring God, bypassing the state. You should be skeptical of the state of government. There's going to be corruption. There's going to be uh, people who are about self-interest. And rather, the notion of there being a perfect moral good out there, however we understand or don't understand some notion of the divine, that is what is to be worshipped, not a king, not a monarch, not any politician. Yes, Judaism makes important space for social, for special roles. There is the parent, there is the Kohen, the, the Levite, the rabbi, the prophet, the king, the judge, and even the secular state, right? As you can see over here. But more important are the values each person is commanded to live by. Confucius, too, while not rejecting the social hierarchies, believed that the social order is insufficient to make someone virtuous. Hence, his values of benevolence righteousness, ritual propriety, wisdom, and trustworthiness we mentioned earlier, right? Fidelity is not enough. Confucius's emphasis on meritocracy, that people should be awarded status, not on the basis of their birth, but by the knowledge and virtue they had achieved, also finds similarities in rabbinic thought. Here's what it says in Pirkei Avot. Rabbi Shimon says, there are three crowns the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of monarchy. But the crown of a good name outweighs them all, right? More important than being a scholar, than being a Kohen, or being a melech, a king, is being a mensch, right? Being a mensch is the highest status among other statuses. Priesthood and kingship are inherited but the Torah is available to everyone who is willing to put in the time and energy to learn. The Mishnah also makes clear that yichus, or to, to, meaning where one is descended from, or Torah knowledge must be complemented with virtue. As great as the kind or Torah scholar may be, without ethics a good name, their, achieve, their achievements are worth little. One of these traits that Jews in particular might have a particular kinship with is ritual propriety. In a world, right, with Pesach coming up in, what, two weeks? In a world that wants us to do away with seemingly archaic traditions, both Confucianism and Judaism uphold the importance of ritual continuity. The idea of Mesorah, tradition, is central to Judaism and essential to its survival throughout the centuries. Whether one is takes a progressive kind of reform approach or uh, a more traditional orthodox approach, Every, um, all segments of Judaism embrace tradition. As the Passover Haggadah makes clear, the wicked son is not one who rejects God. Rather, his challenging question, what does this ritual mean to you? 
is understood as a rejection of the Jewish past, right? That is to say, the wicked one in this Passover story is not the atheist. The, the wicked one is the one who rejects the value of ritual, right? right? Means even if you don't believe in God, come embrace the ritual because the ritual is about more than just religion. Perhaps the best reflection in the Jewish tradition of Confucius's concept of menschlichkeit is in the Musar movement, the 19th century Jewish ethical renewal movement that emphasized the development of a person's midot or character traits. Some examples of midot include loving kindness, honesty, slowness to anger, and commitment. These are all also characteristics of God in the Bible, some suggest, whose model we are to imitate. After Confucius's life, his ideas became profoundly influential in Chinese culture. Confucianism, um, and as is perpetuated by Neo-Confucians, become one of the three pillars of Chinese culture, alongside Buddhism and Taoism. Despite attempts by the communists to stamp out the cultural influences of Confucianism, it remains alongside the other two pillars, a key component of the religious and philosophical lives of many people in China, as well as elsewhere in Asia. As Jews, we can appreciate the commitment to conserving the past and the rituals we've inherited while also looking to the present within our own character development. In seeing Confucius with a similar trajectory and teaching some similar values, we can appreciate how humanity 2,500 years ago was thinking similarly, even while not in touch at all, right? The rabbis and Confucius or the prophets and Confucius are not in touch. And yet while Judaism in its evolutions is constantly layering new ideas on top of old ones, we can appreciate the conservative approach also found in Judaism that some values are not to be abandoned easily. Today, we often get the sense that family, character, and tradition are less important than progress. Confucius can help us help to remind us that those are actually anchors in our lives and in society at large. So friends, the last few points I wanna make before I open it up here, um, although there's so much more to say, um, is, um, is, just, is just to name also um, how kind of Western thinkers have engaged in Neo-Confucian interpretations. And, um, that he really um, was a, a, a pioneer thinker for 18th century Europe. He became identified as China's first philosopher. Jesuit missionaries in China sent back accounts of ancient China that portrayed Confucius as inspired by natural theology to pursue the good, while they considered a marked contrast with the idolatries of Buddhism and Taoism, right? So there were Catholic thinkers who, um, wanted to uh, reject what they thought of as the idolatries of the Far East, but raised up Confucianism as a great model of the Far East, one that they should engage with. Um, Leibniz of the, of the um, early 18th century, um, he also praises Confucius for his approach to universal natural laws through reason, that these Enlightenment writers celebrated the moral philosophy of Confucius for its independence from the dogmatic influence of the church, right? In the 18th century, these enlightened Christian thinkers wanted to break away from the church 
and root their thinking in reason. And they saw Confucius making a similar move earlier that they wanted to follow of breaking away from dogma um, towards a more open thinking. Now, the last thing I want to share, then I'm going to open up uh, the conversation. And, and we're going to see this, actually. The conservative aspects of Confucius align in many ways with the conservative aspects of the Greeks, Socrates and Plato in particular, of kind of how they root their conservatism in the values that they want to promote. But in the, the last point is that in the 20th century, the pursuit of modernization also led to the rejection of Confucius by some reformers in, in the May 4th and new culture movements, as well as in many in the Communist Party. Right, the communists want to reject Confucius, who identified the traditional hierarchies implicit in his social and political philosophies with the social and economic inequalities that they sought to eliminate. Right, the communists want to reject those traditional hierarchies in China, and Confucius was looking to still uphold them in many ways, even though he wanted to transcend them towards character. One of the things that I hope we'll all do each week, before and after, is actually dive in ourselves. You don't need to do this, but dive in ourselves before and after um, into the aspects of these thinkers that resonate for us. Um, so we can go a little deeper. There's only so much we can do in an hour and only so much we can do in the introductory 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and so some things will you know, not be simplified, but some will some, somewhat naturally have to be simplified. And we could spend literally an entire academic course on each one of these individuals just to name some of the folks we're gonna be looking at. So as I mentioned, from Confucius, we're going to Buddha, and then we're going to the Greeks of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And then we're gonna to get to, into Avicenna and Averis. Um, one of the few Jewish thinkers we'll look at then is Maimonides, because he is relevant to the broader political landscape, excuse me, philosophical landscape. And then um, to, to Hobbes and Descartes into the early stages of enlightenment and Locke, then another Jewish thinker, although he's not a Jewish thinker, he's a thinker who's Jewish, which is Spinoza. Um, and then into Leibniz and Voltaire, into in, deeper into enlightenment with Hume and Rousseau, Kant, Bentham, with the utilitarians, Hegel and John Stuart Mill. Then we're going to get into existentialists like Kierkegaard. We're going to get into Henry David Thoreau, then, then into another thinker who is in some ways Jewishly influenced, in other ways not, Karl Marx, into Marxism. Um, and then into William James, and, it, and then the birth of postmodernity with, well, the early roots with Nietzsche, and into phenomenology with uh, Husserl, um, early ped uh, pedagogy with Dewey, uh, somebody who is a Jewish thinker, Martin Buber. But then we get into Wittgenstein and into epistemology and into language, deeper into epistemology with Sartre, um, and then into Levinas. And then we see some women emerging with Hannah Arendt, Simone de Beauvoir, we're going to learn from Isaiah Berlin and uh, um, Albert Camus. Um, then we're going to get finally into the 20th century with, well, I, we're already in the 20th century, but deeper in, with John Rawls, Foucault, maybe Chomsky, Derrida, Rory, Peter Singer, um, and then some of the other women we may engage with as well. Um, you know, maybe Philippa Foote or Martha Nussbaum or Carol Gilligan, if we go that far, Mary uh, Wollstonecraft, um, maybe Iris Murdoch. Murdoch. Um, and so there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. That sometimes we can think that people are taught that their religion cracked the code. And we're going to actually look at how um, various ideas emerged from other places. And, um, and just as we saw, Confucius also had a golden rule. It's not just monotheists who, you know, had such a notion. Um, 
And we're going to see just like you talked about with Buddha and the middle path, Maimonides and, you know, building off the Greeks has this. And we're going to see that in the East as well, this notion of the middle path. And so um, I think that this can give us some humility when we think about where ideas emerged from. And the truth is, even some of these thinkers who are credited as that uh, with the being the founders, um, oftentimes these ideas precede them as well. They're the one who kind of gets the notoriety. So friends, my hope is to be a part of a renaissance of intellectual Judaism. Um, Judaism has been watered down by and large. Um, religion has been watered down. It's been de-intellectualized. It has, um, and it's been done by the left and the right. The left has moved religion almost solely into social action, which you know I love, you know I love, but it can't replace the intellectual side. And the right has in many ways watered down another in, uh, by other means politically and through kind of notions of fidelity to, to aspects of tradition. And I want to be a part of reawakening an intellectual Judaism, a Judaism that has something to say for the world, you know, say to the world, a Judaism that has something to, to learn from the world. One that is, um, uh, is thinking about the full canon of philosophy and of course ideas beyond philosophy and is deeply critical, uh, critically thinking that we're not just on the bandwagon of the day, but asking big important questions as well. So friends, I'm so glad you joined this first session with us. I hope you'll continue to be with us. As always, if you have feedback, thoughts, or whatever, you can always reach out. Other than that, um, wishing many blessings to you and look forward to seeing you for the Buddha, the Buddha next Tuesday. <laughs> have a great day.